Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, thanks for tuning in to a new episode of Talking France. On the menu this week, we'll look at how Parisians have turned up the heat on owners of big fuel-guzzling SUV vehicles and whether more French cities will follow their lead. We'll hear about more travel misery ahead for Eurostar passengers and we'll try to understand French waiters. Are they just grumpy garçons or serious professionals who get an unfair reputation? And our big talking point this week is once again France's new language test requirements for residency cards and citizenship. We'll answer some of your important questions on the issue. And we'll explore whether the French, reputed as being the world's biggest romancers, are actually bothered about Valentine's Day. This podcast is produced by The Local and made possible thanks to our members. If you'd like to join, then now's the time. You can make the most of a special offer for podcast listeners by going to thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. I'll share the link in the show notes. I'm Ben McPartland and I've drawn some names out of the hat this week for people who are <laughs> going to join me. Luckily, we've picked Emma Pearson, Jen Mansfield and politics expert John Litchfield. How about that, guys? Yeah, what are the odds? Completely <laughs> random. Shall we crack on? We'll start, I think, with the referendum we had in Paris this weekend, the result of which has gained international headlines. It was a referendum that has proved pretty divisive, even though it didn't motivate that many voters to head to the ballot box, Emma. More on the turnout shortly, but just tell us what this vote was about and why it's got some people hot under the collar. Yeah, so Paris City Hall put forward a plan to triple parking fees for SUVs. That's the big heavy vehicles, uh, sports utility vehicles, sometimes also called 4x4s. And the reason for this is basically because they don't like them and they don't want them in the city. The Paris mayor, Anne Hidalgo, she says that the SUV vehicles are more polluting than smaller cars. They take up too much space in the city. And there are also safety concerns about them, that a pedestrian or a cyclist who is hit by an SUV is more likely to die or be seriously injured than if hit by a car travelling at the same speed. So the extra parking fees, they will be €18 an hour in the city centre and €12 an hour in the arrondissement that are a bit further out. They're basically an attempt to dissuade people from buying SUVs and from bringing them into the city. And City Hall decided that they would put this to the vote. So on Sunday, the people of Paris, well, some of them, they went to the polls to vote on the proposal and by a narrow margin, it was adopted. So those new fees are going to come into effect on September 1st. Let's talk about the turnout you referred to there, Emma. I've got some numbers for you. So out of 1.37 million Parisians who could have voted, only 78,121 of them did cast a vote. That's about 5.7%. Just over 35,000 voted against the plan and 42,400 voted in favour. That low turnout has led to critics suggesting the vote isn't valid, but the law says it's completely legal, Emma. Yeah, it turned out was very low. I think it's partly because referendums are just not really a part of the political landscape in France. So our neighbours over in Switzerland, they vote in referendums all the time. They have referendums on big issues like gun control, immigration rules, equal marriage, and there's usually multiple referendums in a year. In France, they're a lot less common. The last national referendum was in 2005. It was to do with ratifying a new constitution for the EU, and it was rejected by the public. And a lot of commentators said that it was a 
about voters just taking the opportunity to punish the then president, Jacques Chirac, who at the time was not popular. Constitutionally, referendums can also be organised on a local level, but they're not really that common on a local level either. It seems to be a new thing that the Paris Marie is trying out. I think they're trying for a bit more sort of direct democracy, which you might recall was a key demand from the Yellow Vest protesters. They had another referendum on electric scooters last year, but that doesn't really seem to have caught the imagination of the most of the residents of Paris either. Turnout for that was just 7%. But also I think it's partly the fact that the idea of charging more for SUVs has just not been hugely controversial in France. I've certainly not seen or heard much outrage about it, and most people really just shrug if you ask them. Yeah, one of the interesting things the vote revealed or perhaps confirmed was this east-west divide in Paris. Voters in the more well-to-do western arrondissement, where a higher percentage of residents drive SUVs, voted against the measure, while the eastern arrondissement, where SUVs are less common, voted for it. Is there any sign this move could be copied in other parts of France, Emma? Well, I mean, this itself is just a Paris City Hall initiative, so it only covers Paris, doesn't even cover the Paris suburbs. And of course, it's part of a long line of measures to make the city of Paris more pedestrian and bike friendly and cut the number of cars in Paris. That's been the main preoccupation of the mayor, Anne Hidalgo, ever since she was elected in 2014. And she was re-elected pretty comfortably in 2020 on a mandate to continue with those policies. But actually, the city of Lyon has already said that it intends to do the same thing. And they didn't bother with the referendum. They're just doing it. I think with other cities, they might kind of wait and see how it goes first. And not just in France. In fact, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, has said he'll be watching the results with interest. One thing I think might interest other cities is the cash. The Paris Mairie estimates that the increased parking fees will bring in an extra 35 million euro a year to its coffers. So I imagine that would be pretty attractive to Mm. cash-strapped city authorities around the world. But on a national level, France does already have an extra tax that's levied on vehicles over a certain weight. It's charged at 10 euro per kilo for vehicles up to 2.1 tonnes and €30 per kilo for vehicles heavier than 2.1. So it adds roughly €16,000 to the cost of a medium-sized SUV. But I have to say, the government doesn't seem very impressed with the Paris Environment Plan. The Environment Minister, Christophe Béchou, he said it was a kind of punitive environmentalism, although he did go on to say that drivers should opt for lighter vehicles. Mm, Let's bring in John Litchfield here, who joins us on the line from Normandy. John, such a low turnout for this vote, critics saying the vote isn't legitimate. Are these two referendums in Paris we've mentioned on SUVs and electric scooters a sign the French don't do referendums? Well, it's a difficult one to answer, isn't it? Because, you know, why did they have a referendum on this subject when the mayor of Paris, uh, Anne Hidalgo, has made many such changes in her time in in the town hall, um, hasn't felt it necessary to have um, a referendum? I think that having the referendum was a way of saying, look, my policy of being anti-car, but certainly reducing the space and the legitimacy of cars in Paris is basically supported by Parisians. Well, I'm not sure a 5% turnout and a very narrow vote in favour has given her that sort of backing, really. So in that sense, I think it's turned out to be a rather damp squib of an exercise. Obviously, you know, she's got the vote in favour, but she could have gone ahead and done it anyway. So whether she'll repeat that, I don't know. She has other plans. You know, she's saying she doesn't want cars to go back in front of the Eiffel Tower after the Olympics, uh, which at the moment is being opposed by the government, which has the final say on 
many road issues within the capital. So I think overall, although she got the win, I think it's, the exercise has been a bit of a flop. And French and referenda is a sort of, you know, there isn't a French tradition of referenda to decide local things or even national things as there is in Switzerland or California. And the national referenda tend to be a referendum on the government of the day rather than the issue that's put before people. So I'm not sure whether this idea of having a referendum on local issues is going to catch on. No. Let's move on from SUV vehicles to a subject that everyone has an opinion on, the French waiter. One complaint some foreigners have about waiters in France, Jen, is that, well, they can be a bit slow. But there's an interesting event being held next month to get them moving a little bit quicker. Tell us about it. Yes. So on Sunday, March 24th, Paris is going to host the Course des Garçons de Café, or the Café Waiters Race. This tradition actually started in 1914, and it kept going up until 2011 when it was paused in Paris. Basically, the competing waiters will wear their traditional outfit, so a white shirt, dark trousers, and an apron, and they'll have to carry a tray with a croissant, coffee, and glass of water along a two-kilometer course through the Marais, which is notoriously crowded with twisty and narrow roads, all without spilling a sip. The fastest waiter wins, and the end of the race is going to be at the City Hall right next to the Seine. And it's for real waiters, I presume. I can't enter. <laughs> yeah, you have to actually be a waiter in right, France. Right, okay. It's called the Garçon race. Does that mean it's only for boys, men? Uh, no, the modern version includes women as well, though I would still avoid calling your French waiter Garçon. It's mm. a bit insulting. No one does that anymore, no? No, I think that's out of fashion now. The race is also not Paris-specific. Uh, it also takes place in other French cities like Nantes, Grenoble and Dijon, and many more. Jen, tell us a bit more about being a waiter in France. It's slightly different to waiters in other countries. You've done it. Any experience to share? Yeah. So I was a server in Paris and I really enjoyed it. It definitely helped me improve my French. Uh, I did it for two years while I was studying, uh, which is a pretty common description for servers in the US and the UK. But in France, that is true. There are plenty of st students and young people who work in the service industry to make a little extra cash. But you also have a very large number of people who have made serving their career choice. So you walk into a French bistro and there's a decent chance that your server will be someone in their 50s or 60s with decades of experience working in the industry. And I think this kind of harkens back to the respect that French people have for gastronomy and the restaurant industry in general. Servers are seen as professionals and the decision to become a server is oftentimes a career choice rather than just a temporary way to make some extra money. A full-time French server gets all the same benefits that other full-time workers get. So at least 25 vacation days a year, a half of your complimentary health care covered by your employer, plus protection against unfair dismissal, just to name a couple of them. And we can also see the importance of restaurant work in France just based on the sheer number of people that work in the sector. As of 2023, there were 1.2 million restaurant industry workers in total, which is more than 1% of the total French population. Mm, which makes sense, considering tourism is one of France's largest industries. But there's also the aspect that French servers are paid a livable wage, so they aren't really seen as low-paid workers in the same way they might be in the US or UK, Jen? Yeah, even though it isn't a very high-paying profession, most servers do make above minimum wage. So the median salary for a server is 22,204 euro a year, which is just a bit above France's minimum wage of 21,203 euro a year. And then per hour, the median wage is 12 euro 20 for servers. And that's in comparison to 11.65, which is the national minimum wage. And those numbers do differ a bit by region. So salaries in Paris are typically higher than rural areas, for example. One big difference with the US and even the UK now, Jen, is what, what often comes up is the tipping culture. 
Yeah. So in France, service is actually factored into the final bill already in contrast to service being considered extra in the U.S. or I guess the U.K., as you mentioned. But overall, the different approach to tipping really has to do with the fact that servers are full-time salaried employees in France. They're intended to earn a livable wage. So that means tipping culture is just less of a thing. When I was working, it was normal for a customer to leave a euro or two or maybe round up their bill if they were really pleased with the service. But that was definitely not the norm. Uh, By the time we went to split up our tips at the end of a shift, a really, really good night would be like seven to 10 euro in tips per person. But an average night would have been more like four or five euro a person. Mm, When I worked in a pub here, we were desperate for Americans to come in. You knew you were guaranteed a big tip. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You get them a glass of water and they just slam five euros on the bar. (laughs) I think we should bring in John Litchfield again here. John, you frequented a few Parisian bistros in your time. Do French waiters get an unfair reputation? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly true that I think being a waiter used to be, I think it's changing, regarded as a sort of profession for life, not just something that young people did before they did something more permanent and better paid, which seems to be the case in many other countries. I think that's changing. You know, I think overall, older male waiters used to be very common in, in Paris restaurants. You don't see them quite as much in their long white uh, aprons and so on, they're, they're still there. And it was always the case that they were extremely grumpy, but like with all these things, they were extremely grumpy with everyone. But tourists would come and think, oh, they don't like me because I'm British or German or whatever. But in fact, they'd be just as rude to French guests or, or uh, diners if they didn't sort of know them to be sort of wealthy people who, who would give them good tips and so on. So, uh, yeah, it was always more of a Paris thing than a provincial thing. I think that's true generally of alleged rudeness of the French. I mean, I, I have a small anecdote I can tell you once I was sitting at a, at a restaurant on, on, on Champs-Elysees waiting for something to happen. I was just having a coffee and a group of German um, tourists came and sat down and addressed a waiter of the kind I, I described as a man in his late middle age with a long white apron in English. And he refused to talk to them. said, no, you know, he said in French, no, I, absolutely, you can speak to me in French. I, you can't just address me in English and expect me to answer. And so he, they sat there for a long time, 30, 40 minutes, <laughs> and he refused to <laughs> go near them and they kept calling him over and he just ignored them. Finally, they stood up and one of the Germans, using the only French word he knew, I suppose, said, mad. And the waiter looked on and said, yes, you can speak French. Great. I knew you could. That was the kind of incident that used to happen a lot. It doesn't still happen, probably, but less. I I think gradually that generation of waiters has been replaced by a younger and more sort of service-minded generation, even in Paris. If you're British and living in France, you will know that banking is not as straightforward as in Britain. Depending on your situation, there may be special banking or administrative requirements. Often it can be confusing. Whether managing a move to live and work in France, purchasing a holiday home or retiring, Britline can help. Founded in 1999 as part of Credit Agricole Normandie, Britline's advisors can help you establish a new life in France, all in simple, plain English. To find out more, head to Britline.com. Now, we've had more concerning warnings about future travel between the UK and France this week. It all surrounds the rollout of the EU's new biometric border checks known as EES, which is scheduled to come into force in October 2024. Although given the concerns and the fact it's already been delayed numerous times, don't be surprised if EES is delayed again. It's basically going to require passengers to register on entry to the EU Schengen area and will replace the current system of passport stamping. Last week, we had authorities warn 
warning about possible 14-hour queues on roads leading to the port of Dover due to the knock-on effects from the new checks. This week, the focus was on the cross-channel Eurostar train service, with warnings that daily services will have to be cut back because of the impact of the EES checks. Emma, you are the bearer of yet more bad news this week about Eurostar and the future of travel there. I am, I'm afraid, yes, which really pains me because I love the Eurostar. I think it's a great service and it still kind of blows my mind that you can get a train under the sea. Mm. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's, uh, that's relevant. Um, this, um, this warning that you're talking about, it affects Eurostar services between London and Paris. And the problem is the check-in area at St Pancras Station in London. Now, if you've travelled on the Eurostar, you will know that the check-in area at St Pancras is small. It already gets pretty crowded, but Once the new passport control system, EES, that you talked about comes in in the autumn, passengers who are leaving the UK will be required to undergo more rigorous passport checks, including fingerprints and facial scans. So this week, HS1, which owns St Pancras Station, it says that it will require 50 new EES kiosks to make sure that all passengers can be processed without delays. But apparently the government is only proposing creating 24 kiosks. And according to HS1, that's not enough to get the current passenger numbers through the biometric checks in a timely manner. So they'll either have massive queues and delays or they will have to cut the number of trains they run every day. Mm. And regular users of the Eurostar will know that the Eurostar has already cut the number of daily services it runs between London and Paris since Brexit. That's because of the advanced checks and passport stamping that have been required since the end of the Brexit transition period. And running fewer services means that Eurostar has had to raise their prices. Uh, The HS1 bosses, they don't say it, but it it does seem pretty likely that a further cut in services will mean that prices rise again. Mm. It's one of the things people regularly talk about, you know, among circles here, people who regularly travel to London is complaining about the prices of the Eurostar. I got a decent deal to go for kind of 35 euros one way recently, but you really got to plan ahead. Otherwise, if you just want to kind of go look for a Eurostar option, it really feels as though the prices have gone way up. And are people even talking about flying now, Emma? Uh, Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, we don't have any actual data on this, but yeah, there is anecdotal evidence that people are choosing to fly between London and Paris purely on cost grounds. Mm. Uh, So Sabia Mokadam, who's a, a French national who's lived in London for a long time, she told Agence France Presse that she is forced to fly because of what she described as Eurostar's prohibitive ticket prices. She said, yes, I think of all the carbon that I'm emitting for such a short flight, but I just can't afford the train. And she said that she would happily pay a little more for the train because it's better for the planet. And also she just prefers the service going by rail, but the difference for her is just too much. Mm. Lucy Kelly, she's 30 from Ireland who lives in Paris. She said basically the same as what you just said. She said, if I'm organised enough, I'll book the Eurostar, then you can still find a return for 110 euro, which I think is fine. Although it is more expensive than the plane. But if I go last minute, the prices can be crazy. So I'll Mm. fly instead. And yes, I mean, obviously with flying, you do have to take into account the cost of getting to and from the airport, plus any extra charges such as baggage. But I mean, budget airlines do advertise flights for about 50 euro between Paris and London, while the Eurostar, depending on where you book, can set you back between sort of 150 and 200 euro. So it's a lot, that difference. And obviously this is not a great look as governments are trying to encourage people to opt for greener travel methods, but you can't really blame people for deciding that they simply can't afford the Eurostar, especially for a last minute trip. Is there any hope that prices will fall? You know, for example, there are other operators bidding to run trains on the Paris-London line. With more competition, could prices come down? 
I'm not getting too excited about that one, I have to say. Yes, there are now three operators who've announced that they will tender bids to run a Paris-London train service, but these are really in the early stages. They're basically just talking about it right now. And yet they might get licenses to run on that route, but they will face exactly the same problems as the Eurostar, because obviously they will have to do these EES checks as well. And where will they depart from? St Pancras, as we've said, already doesn't have enough room for the Eurostar passengers, so it's kind of hard to see where they would fit in extra passengers from a different service. They could maybe depart from another station along the route, maybe Ebbsfleet in Kent, which the Eurostar no longer stops at. But one of the main attractions of the Eurostar is that it gets you right into the centre of London and Paris. And I know stopping at a town in Kent 30 kilometres outside London is not exactly the same. So Mm. we'll see, but I wouldn't really be banking on those in the short term. Mm. Let's bring in John again, uh, who knows a thing or two about trains. John, the Eurostar has already suffered quite a lot since Brexit. Is it doomed as a viable service? Well, it's, it's extraordinary what's happened, you know, that St Pancras, it all comes down really to St Pancras and a little bit Ashford, which used to be quite an important station in Kent, which has been abandoned completely because it doesn't have the resources to do the checks post-Brexit. And St Pancras doesn't have the space, or it could have the space if they redeveloped it. There's a lot of space underneath St Pancras, which is not used, but no one's willing to make that investment. It's a difficult one because I think the other issue here, which has not been mentioned much in the media coverage, is that there is also... There are also quite advanced plans for other companies to compete on that line, not necessarily just uh, Paris and London, but from London into other capital cities or other cities in Europe. And that obviously will transform the competitive situation and therefore possibly bring down Eurostar prices. But where are all these trains going to go? I mean, that's going to also increase the competition for the slots, to use an aircraft term rather than a railway term, into St. Pancras. So the thing has become a bit of a mess because, like, many things with Brexit. No one looked ahead, no one planned, no one did the administrative work, no one did the actual logistics work to make these things work possible. This is a problem for St. Brancus, it's a problem also for Dover and all the the British South Coast ports. So it's difficult to say. I don't see Eurostar disappearing, I don't see trains across across the through the tunnel, passenger trains through the tunnel disappearing. But until we know who and how many competing services there are going to be, it's difficult to predict what exactly the future of Eurostar will be. Thanks, John. Emma, is it just me looking back with rose-tinted glasses at the Eurostar service from like pre-Brexit? It used to be so good, it doesn't seem as good anymore. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I mean, I just remember like when the Euro when the tunnel opened in the, when was it? The early 90s. And just remember how excited we were that we had this like amazing link to, mm. link to Europe. It was like a really genuine groundbreaking moment. And it would be so sad if the, the train service stopped I know, there. I know. Jen, you take the Eurostar? I do. I have a few friends that live in London and I try to go maybe twice a year. And I agree that I've considered flying as well because it's just very expensive. Mm, Let's hope those fears about future travel for the Eurostar aren't realised. But we've got loads of information on EES and what it's going to mean for travel between France and the UK on our website. You should check it out. So we talked last week about France's new immigration law and one part of it in particular, the tougher language tests for certain types of residency cards and citizenship. It's not an exaggeration to say this has been our most asked about topic in months, maybe even years. We've been inundated with questions from listeners and readers of the local. We're still going through all of the questions we've received, but we have noticed a few themes cropping up regularly, especially the situation for older people, how the rule applies to Brits covered by the Brexit withdrawal agreement and when and how to take the tests. We've got a lot of detail on the local France about this. You should check it out. But Emma, 
Can you give us a quick overview of what this law says? Okay, well, I mean, the law itself covers a lot of things, but if we're looking at language, it really affects three groups of people. Those who are making their first request for the multi-year residency card, the carte de séjour pluriannuel, those who are making their first request for the 10-year carte de résident, and those who are applying for French citizenship. So it won't immediately affect new arrivals in France who usually have a, a short-term, usually a one-year card to begin with, although it will affect them later on when, if they decide they want to apply for the multi-year cards. And it won't affect people who already have the carte de séjour pluriannuel or the carte de résident, because renewals are not covered by this. As for the levels, the carte de séjour pluriannuel requires A2, which is the sort of higher beginner level. The tenure carte de résident requires B1, which is the first intermediate level. And citizenship, which used to require B1 level French, now requires B2, which is the kind of higher intermediate level. Mm. There are, however, quite a lot of exceptions and exemptions, so it won't be the case that everyone needs to take a language test. I think the most asked question is whether there is any kind of exemption on these tests for retirees or people aged over... 65. What does the law say, Jen? Okay, so this depends on your situation. Let's get one thing out of the way first. If you are renewing an existing multi-year card, like Emma just mentioned, then you don't need to worry about the new language requirements. They're for the first-time applications. So for a lot of older people living in France, if you already have that 10-year carte de résident, for example, then you'll just be able to renew it and you won't have to worry about the tests. Now, let's get into the first-time applications. Let's say you are still working as a salarié employee, or you're on the self-employed card, auto-entrepreneur, and you want to switch onto a four-year pluriannuel, then there are no plans for age exemptions, as far as we know. But that being said, I don't think it's a far leap to guess that the majority of foreigners in France over 65 are probably not in this bucket, seeing as most people in France stop working around 65 to begin with. Many foreigners in France over 65 are here on the visitor status. And after five years of renewing that visitor card, they may want to switch onto the 10-year carte résident card for the first time. The good news is that the new law does not change or take away the age exemption that existed in the previous version of the law. So people over 65 applying for the first time for a 10-year carte résident are still not going to need to show a language level in French, even though that requirement is increasing from A2 to B1 for everybody else that's going for the 10-year carte résident. When it comes to citizenship, the general age exemption was scrapped in 2020, which means people over 65 do have to show a minimum level of French. This used to be B1, and now it's moving up to B2. Jen, people might be wondering what it means for you know anyone who perhaps has kind of cognitive decline or hearing or eyesight problems. Are they going to have to sit this exam? So the good news is that if you can get a doctor's certificate attesting to your inability to take the test, then you can be exempted. And that rule applies across the board for all of the language requirements. So if you have a disability that affects your ability to take the test, then you can be exempted from it. If you have a disability that maybe doesn't affect your ability to take the test, but maybe you need extra time or assistance, then you can get uh, testing assistance, though, you're going to have to go through your testing center. Okay. The other thing that a lot of people have asked us is how this applies to Brits in France who are covered by the Brexit withdrawal agreement. People who were here before January 2021, in other words, and their family members. Does this law affect them, Emma? Well, it depends what they want to do a little bit. Um, so, yeah, Brits who are here prior to January 2021 and any family members who might have joined them later, they have a special type of carte de séjour. It's the Brexit card. It's known as the WARP or the Article 5. So this is either a five-year or a 10-year card. People who have the 10-year card, and those are people who'd lived here for more than five years before Brexit, they have a permanent right of residency. They just need to renew the card itself every 10 years, but they don't need to provide any supporting documents apart from their previous card and just proof that they still live in France. 
so no language test for them. Those who have the five-year card, they can swap it for the 10-year card once it nears its expiry date, which for most people will be 2026. Now, the exact details of how that swap will be made have not been published yet because the website that we use to apply for it is no longer functional. But we do know that those people will go straight onto the special 10-year Brexit card, which is not one of the ones that's covered by the new law. So in short, if you have a Brexit card, the WARP or the Article 50, you will not need to do a language test for a residency card. Brits who move to France after 2021, they're treated the same way as all other non-EU citizens, so they might have to do the language test. When it comes to citizenship, however, the rules are the same regardless of the type of residency card you have. So any UK nationals looking to become French through residency will need to show that higher proof of uh, French. Mm. Jen, final question. Key question. When do these rules take effect? So we've actually asked the Interior Ministry about this directly. And at the time of recording this podcast, we still have not heard back from them with a firm answer. I know that doesn't really help people who are planning to apply for citizenship in the near future and they're worried about the rules. We expect that those who turned in their applications prior to January 27th, so when the law was put into the Journal Officiel, they hopefully will be grandfathered in with the old rules, but we're still waiting on confirmation for that. If you're wondering which test to take moving forward, I would recommend taking the one that applies with the new rules just to be safe. So if you're signing up for an exam, um, planning on taking citizenship or applying for citizenship in the next few weeks or months, B2 is a safer bet than B1. And in terms of how to actually take that test and how to budget for it, there's a really helpful interactive map on the website uh, France Education Internationale. And it has all the accredited testing centers across France and even outside of France as well. Do we have an idea of how much these tests cost, Jen? Yeah, so the cost per test depends a bit on which test you choose to take and then the level you're going for as well as the region that you're taking it in. So, for example, in Paris, taking the DELF at the Alliance Française for B1 will run you about 214 euro. And it'll cost 269 euro for the B2. But in comparison, the IS Aix-en-Provence exam center charges 120 for a B2 DELF test. Generally, you can expect to pay around 100 to 200 euro across the board. Thanks, guys. And Emma, you can confirm you've been writing about this a lot. We've got plenty of info detail on our website. Is that true? Uh, yes, we have, we have a lot of this, and we also have a sort of a questionnaire where if you know if you've got questions, you can uh, mm. you can send them to us, and we'll do our best to answer them. And there's still a few unanswered questions which we will try and get answers for. So keep an eye on the site. Thank <laughs> you, Jen, on behalf of all our listeners and readers. New legislation in France to tackle climate change is changing the way you let or sell properties. From next year, you will need to provide an energy performance diagnostic certificate with a rating above a G grade to potential tenants or buyers. If your property is modern, this won't be a problem. However, bringing older properties up to that energy efficient standard could be complex and costly. Luckily, there is help available. To help you plan your renovation, Britline, the French bank with British thinking, has created a handy on Line guide. Their tool will help you estimate your diagnostic grade, identify any grants or loans you may be eligible for, and identify local tradesmen. Head to Britline.com where in their help and resources section you will find several blogs on the subject. France is a very popular destination for couples looking to celebrate Valentine's Day. That is uh, Le Saint-Valentin, as the French call it. It's on February the... 14, thanks, Jen. Uh, but how do the French themselves celebrate? Or do they even celebrate, Jen? That is the question I've got for you today. <laughs> well, you might be surprised to learn that a lot of French people do not see Valentine's Day as all that special. An Ipsos survey of French adults in 2022 
found that over 60% of French people believe Valentine's Day is a quote-unquote commercial holiday. And only approximately 36% of French people planned on celebrating. Now, it's worth pointing out that that number did go up to 41% for people in relationships, though. Mm. Still, that means over half of French couples don't do anything for Valentine's Day. You probably wouldn't expect that given all the flower shops advertising roses in February. Yeah, it does feel like a bit of a disconnect with the decorations and the reputation of France as the Mm. romantic destination. I mean, at least in Paris, you definitely see shops with their heart decor all throughout January. But when it comes to the French people that do celebrate Valentine's Day, they have a pretty sizable budget. On average, in 2022, French people who celebrated planned on spending about 114 euro on Valentine's gifts. Wow. What kind of gifts are we talking about here? Well, I asked Camille Chevalier-Carfis, French language expert and the head of the Language Learning French Today website about this. So she spent 17 years living in the U.S. and she had some interesting comparisons to make. She told me that by and large, French people celebrate Valentine's Day with food. People will try to go to a nice romantic restaurant or cook a special meal at home, she told me. She said that red roses and flowers are popular, but chocolates, not so much. This tracked with the data that I found. The 2022 survey said that most people marked the event at home. About a third said that they would go to a restaurant, and about a fifth said that they had a romantic weekend planned. But I thought Camille made another really interesting point. In France, Valentine's Day is mainly for people in romantic and sexual relationships. It's not the norm to celebrate with your platonic friends or family on Valentine's Day. So Galentine's isn't really a thing here. And the same goes for kids. I'm not sure if this is standard in the UK, um, but in the US, it's normal to give out little Valentine's cards and candy to your classmates in primary school. Primary school? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. it's, It's just like, Sweet and innocent, um, but that doesn't really happen in France and I guess not in the UK either. <laughs> Jen, you've left a message at the end of the notes for this uh, script for the podcast. Ben chimes in about Valentine's Day as though I'm an expert on Valentine's Day. <laughs> uh, funny enough, I am an expert on Valentine's Day. Would you believe it? Um, uh, I would not believe it, no. No, no, you're right. I think Valentine's Day, interesting, Valentine's Day is one of the reasons I moved from the UK to France for. Interesting. Because T- I, tell I, us more. I found it far too commercial in England, far too much pressure on doing something special for Valentine's Day. People would be like, what are you doing for Valentine's Day? I'm taking my girlfriend to New York for the day. And you're like, what? I've just like, I've ordered a favourite pizza. That's about it. I mean, Emma, are you romantic? What do you do for Valentine's Day? I'm from Yorkshire. Valentine's Day is not yeah. part of our culture. This, uh, uh, To be honest, even your special pizza sounds like pretty extreme from where I'm sitting. Called, um, um, I think it was called a margarita, I think it was. <laughs> really? That was very exotic. But I do, appre- I really appreciate the fact the French keep it very low key. They don't go in for it at all, no? Yeah, I, that's I my, agree. my impression. Apart from all the couples who come to Paris who we see wandering around booking up all the restaurants over Valentine's Day. Yeah, I mean, it is quite funny, actually, if you go out over like Valentine's Day weekend, if you're in the centre of Paris, you'll almost certainly stumble across someone proposing it. Yes, exactly. It's just like, guys, this is so cliched. Yeah, so true, so true. <laughs> thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, John. Thanks to all our listeners. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. We'll be back with more next week. 